Hi everyone, welcome to the Race and Health Podcast Environmental Justice Series. Today we'll be addressing the topic of migration and xenophobia. And please do sign up to our newsletter through the Race and Health website, which this year focuses on migration. My name is Dilan Devakumar, and I'm very happy to be joined by Baltica Cabiesas, my good fellow, and our Race and Health team member, Rita Issa. Baltica is a nurse midwife and professor at Universidad del Desarrollo in Chile and former co-leader of Lancet Migration for Latin America. She works on social inequities in health, health of international migrants and patients research. Maya is a writer and academic specialising in the relationship between race, bordering and capitalism. She's currently Leverhulme Early Career Research Fellow at Sperry in the University of Sheffield and author of the book Hostile Environment, How Migrants Became Scapegoats. Rita is a GP in the UK and Clinical Research Fellow at Lancet Migration. She studies intersections between climate change migration and health. She's previously worked with MSF in migrant and refugee health in the Middle East and with Docs Not Cops on the hostile environment of the UK NHS. Rita, can, can I start with you? Can you explain the issue of migration and how it relates to racial and climate justice in broad terms? Yes, I guess for me, I've been working in the migrant health space for quite a long time. And I really feel that the times that we're in are defined by migration. About one in eight people is living in a different place to the place that they were born. 258 million people have moved across country borders and about three times that have moved within country borders. And as we move through this century, climate and environmental change is predicted to displace more and more people. And I think it's an incredibly fraught area because the vast majority of people who are going to be displaced are going to be doing so in a relatively dysregulated and disorganised way, directly in response to, for example, extreme weather events, rising sea levels, worsening heat, and also as a result of the other knock-on effects of climate change, so famine, drought, social and political insecurity. So for people on the move, migration is a highly varied experience. When migration is relatively organised and safe and planned, it could be really positive and an expansive experience. So moving for work or for education. But what we see for people when migration is irregular and disorganised is that it could be associated with many risks. Those could be risks in the place that they've been displaced, but also in transit and in settling either in camps or in destination locations. And we see this um, very vividly on the borders of Europe through the Mediterranean crossing, the crossing of the Channel to the UK, and also um, earlier this year on Europe's Eastern European borders, where thousands were camped out in freezing conditions on the Poland-Belarus border. And so, yeah, it feels like within this wider conversation that race and health is having around climate change and racial justice, it's important that we speak about migration. And I'm really excited about the different panellists that we have here today who can bring a range of experiences to discuss that. Thank you. So, so following on from this, Baltico, um, can you tell me how climate change impacts migration and migrant health specifically? Yes. So to me and to many, many others, climate change is a quite complex and growing global public health issue and threat that really needs further research and action in every region in the world. Climate change can be directly and indirectly connected with migration, for example, direct connection through hurricanes, extreme heat, rise of sea level and related destruction of buildings or crops that make people move to prevent this from happening again. But there are also indirect connections like nature's economic fragility, like super droughts that have affected crops and related economic earnings of low-income families. Hence, they need to move to a different place due to climate change and its economic effects in their lives, and not just because of the natural disaster that was happening at that particular time. 
So there are short-term and long-term effects of climate change on, on migration, and there are direct and indirect effects of it as well. It is a very complex and dynamic relationship between climate change and migration, internal migration, and also international migration, crossing borders from one country to another. I would like to add, if I may, that sometimes it is hard to distinguish climate migrants from other types of migrants like economic migrants and refugees because of this complex relationship between climate change and migration. And the interconnection between climate change and migration is intertwined at individual, family, community and nation level. And so all these levels are also affecting the way we understand climate change, but also how we interpret its effects and the reasons why people move. And that's true, isn't it? People move for a number of reasons, which are all kind of mixed together. Can you tell me about the situation in Latin America specifically? Are there specific issues there? Yes. So I have examples to share with you today. It's related to uh, Haitians in Latin America, people who are born in Haiti. In Spanish, we call it Haiti. The people from this country have historically moved out of Haiti to the north and the south of the Latin American region, given it the country's structural poverty. The 2010 massive earthquake left many cities in the country in pieces, and a vast proportion of Haitians left the country. Many of them arrived in different countries like Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Brazil, Chile, and Argentina. Today, Haitian migrants represent about 200,000 people in Chile, roughly a 13% of the total migrant population in the country. And it's the third most frequent country of origin of international migrants in Chile. Among, among those Haitians who work with crops, agriculture, they have been suffering and struggling with over five years of mega droughts in the central area of Chile, affecting obviously the crops they worked at. After Biden became president of the U.S., many Haitians left Chile in the search of entering to the U.S. After a six to eight months travel by foot, many of them were blocked and rejected in the border even mistreated because of their color of skin or migration status. Some of them walked back and returned to Chile or moved to a different country in South America. This complex and long migration flow depicts the complexity of connections between climate change, including natural disaster, economic frailty, social and ethnic marginalization, and political imaginaries of many people that choose to move and also among those who live in receiving countries. Thank you. And these are all sort of layers on top of each other, aren't they? Yes. So that's the thing. It's like layers of vulnerability. So the effects on social and health amongst them is exponential over time. And we need to understand that in order to protect and control this at the right time. Thank you. And, and Maya, Rita, would you like to come in on this too? I think one of the things to say about the whole debate around this as well, because there is a political debate around so-called climate migration, like we know from lots of existing work that these forms of labelling, so whether it is the so-called economic migrant, the refugee or the so-called climate migrant, these acts of labelling are often political or used in political ways. They don't ever really capture the complexity of movement. And so one of the reasons this kind of labelling exists is not only because it's used to the sort of political ends, but also because when the Refugee Convention had to establish who constituted a refugee, there was this need or desire to draw distinctions between people because of the reasons they'd moved. But one of the things that we know from work on climate change and migration, it doesn't really accurately, this sort of frame of the climate migrant or climate refugee doesn't really accurately reflect what's happening because often climate change acts as what is called a threat multiplier. So already existing inequalities, if we look at poverty, which is not natural, but is 
produced through global economic policy. If you look at access to healthcare, if you look at infrastructure, all of these things shape not only who is differentially exposed to the climate crisis, but also the lack of ability to adapt in any kind of way or any meaningful way for a lot of people to what is happening. And so obviously the overarching aim is stop the climate crisis. But in the meantime, for people who are being so differentially exposed to it, there are not the tools to adapt in any kind of way, or there are often those tools are lacking because of these pre-existing inequalities. And so that means that people have to move and most people are moving, we know, within regions. And so there's also this very um, alarmist, xenophobic, racialized debate in countries like Britain or across Europe that suggests that people are going to come here and, you know, fits into this like, very xenophobic narrative about flooding. So that, so that very much goes on to my next question. What role does racism and xenophobia play in shaping these inequalities? And, and why does the climate crisis have an adverse effect on minoritized communities? Yeah, so this has actually been an issue of concern for both people on the far right um, of European politics and also what you might call centrists, liberals, people like Hillary Clinton have spoken about the, the, the perceived threat of people who are climate migrants and the, the sort of dominant discourse from what we can tell thus far, although those sort of different political actors have different aims, this dominant sort of agreement is that people are going to increasingly have to move because of the climate crisis, which is a sort of simplification of, act, of what is happening, but that they're going to move to places like Europe, to places um, like Britain, the US. We should recognise that people should be able to move for whatever reason they need to, as well as they should have the right to stay. Um, it just simply, that simply isn't borne out by the data. So this racialized threat of people coming from countries, particularly in the global south, is being used to reinforce arguments basically for even stronger and more violent borders. And so you, you sort of have this very, very racialized construction of who is the climate migrant and what that means in places like Europe, as opposed to there being actually concerned for the people who are being impacted by the climate crisis and thinking about why it is that people are not able to adapt in the meaningful ways perhaps they need to but I think there's also another way of thinking about like minoritized communities within places like Britain like from a small amount of work that I've done with a colleague we can see if we look at the sort of trade union discourse on things like climate change there's not always a willingness to challenge certain policies that feed into the climate crisis so, so an example of this is the expansion of Heathrow the, the new runway at Heathrow and this that, that's all being supported by unions. And there's an argument to be made that one of the reasons why it's possible for certain trade union actors to support policies like that is because the people who may be most affected are minoritized communities who live in areas close to the airport. And so from that, we could, we could argue, and obviously I think more work needs to be done on this, that because the sort of figure in places like Britain and, and Europe of who is the legitimate worker and sort of the legitimate tra and meaningful trade union activist has historically been a white working class man that exclude people who are minoritized, who are working class, who are like, I, you know, I'm in Newham right now. And if you think about air quality, this is a really diverse borough and the air quality is really bad. And so we can draw these links between whose life is seen to be valuable, whose life is not, and then how people are differentially exposed to the climate crisis. So yes, we're sort of all in it together. The world, you know, we all inhabit this earth, but it's who is impacted, how and when, and to what extent, that I think does tend to tally with um, people who are racialized as sort of less valuable or less important.
Thank you. And that particular example of air pollution we cover in the previous episode, actually, on in, in relation to London. Uh, Rita, how, how does this play out, particularly in your clinical practice? Yeah, so just to add to what Maya was saying, I think it's important to remember that within the context of the climate crisis and the associated legitimate threats and risks to health, well-being and livelihood, migration can be a completely valid adaptation response to climate change. In the cases of exposure to climate risk, it's often the most vulnerable people who are unable to move and unable to migrate out of these areas of risk. And these people are more likely often to be poorer, disabled and the elderly. And so there's this additional vulnerability there for people who can't migrate. This is alongside recognising that migration itself also does come with its associated risks, especially when it's done in an uncoordinated way. Perhaps just to highlight some of the complexity around this. So we've recently conducted a review study on the connections between heat and migration. And when we set out to study this area, we're expecting to find temperatures rise and then people migrate out of areas of heat. And that does happen in some scenarios, but it's a little bit more nuanced than that. So there's many adaptive responses that could be taken to stop that from happening. So installing air conditioning will mean that you're able to continue um, living healthily within a certain area. But of course, that's something you can only do if you're able to afford to do it. And also what we found is that not only do people migrate away from an area of heat and, it, and its risks, but many migrant workers end up working in areas of extreme heat, where presumably the economic drivers to migrate are stronger than the threats to health. And so we've seen this in Mexican agricultural workers in the US and also Nepali construction workers in Qatar, who subsequently face quite significant physiological risks to their health, along with higher mortality rates as a result of working in these environments. The other thing is that we've also worked with some health workers in East Africa around this concept of the climate migrant. And to them, they've said, well, it doesn't really matter where somebody has moved from or the reasons why they've moved. We're not necessarily going to be providing different services to them or restricting access to services based on whether they're this sort of migrant or that sort of migrant. There's a bit of a question of why, why do we need to categorise someone as a climate migrant? And it seems that beyond preparedness and recognising vulnerability, at the moment it's primarily being used much more as a political tool and categorisation above what it means for individuals. Baltica, can you tell me what you think as well? Thank you. I completely agree with Maya and Rita. I think there is the, in a way, relatively new element of climate change globally, but also this is intertwined with structural inequities that have been deepened by climate change effects on climate as reflected in agriculture, water, food disposition, security and economic and human development of, all, of nations all over the world. So in a way, it's climate change reinforcing structural inequities that have been pervasive in every country and in every region in the world. So that's why I think talking about racism is so interesting because minority groups all over the world are the ones most affected first by climate change and the ones more severely affected by climate change effects. There is another example in the south of Chile. There are still some minority ethnic groups like the Huilliches and they come from the Mapuche culture, similar to the Mapuche culture in the south, who have prevailed over centuries in the country. And these are small communities of women whose partners are fishermen and they live in the coast in very poor settings. And because of climate change, raise of the level of the sea and less fish to catch over time, some of them have had to move. So some families have moved to Santiago, the capital of the country, and they are living 
in urban, large urban cities, very complex in very poor boroughs, uh, with poor quality of air, as Maya was saying, uh, marginalized, with poor access to social protection, to health insurance, and so on. But there is also a bunch of families that stayed there. So climate change makes some people to move up, but others to stay. And those who stay also struggle with uh, the poverty that surrounds climate change effects on uh, the availability of fish and quality of the air and quality of the earth for agriculture and so on. So you may see that both groups are very poor. Some of them are outside their natural environment. They're in a large city now. But, and the ones who stayed are still very poor or get becoming poorer over time. They remain with this connection to earth and their ancestries and to their cosmovision of the world. So in a way, moving could be a solution for some, but staying could be also the best possible situation for others. So the idea of racism is intertwined by how those who suffer more from climate change all over the world are often low-status migrants, ethnic minority groups, socioeconomically deprived families, and others. So many of these characteristics are present in people on the move who suffer from stigma, prejudice, and discrimination based on their ethnic background. In Chile, for example, and in Latin America, if you are white and tall and thin, that is considered high status. And if you are short, dark-skinned, and from an ethnic background, you are considered low status. That is, in a way, present from centuries on. I mean, the entire colonization of Latin America is based on European countries invading and killing ethnic min minorities who were living there far before them. So this idea of white high status that Maya described before is also present in Latin America. And it's also present in Asia and in North America and so on. So talking about racism and prejudice and discrimination as the things we can see of how we treat one another come from these understandings that are from many centuries ago embedded in our cultures and in the way we see life. So we need to add the historical lens of what racism means to all of us and how climate change is intertwined with this and producing climate migrants and many other categories of migrants that are suffering and struggling today. So I think that's that's how deep this discussion can go. And it's true how it's used as a political tool by, by several politicians and everywhere, I think, most migrants will move somewhere close to where they live. This idea of all these hordes of people coming from far away, particularly people who look a certain way, this, this is used to garner votes, essentially. What can we do to improve the situation? And if you can talk at, at both an individual level and also a kind of structural or policy level, what kind of things can we do? I, I suppose it kind of depends on where in the world you are in terms of like what your individual response would be. But I think it's really important that we all make sense of what this idea of climate migration is doing in our political debate so that we can challenge the ways that it's being utilised. And whilst, you know, it depends on how you want to approach this, there's there are movements to advocate for the creation of a category of climate refugee in order to provide people with more protections. There's some pitfalls with that, but you know, you can you can get involved with pushing for that for that kind of change. But I think it's really important that we all understand how racialized these debates are, how inaccurate they are, how they are they're very misleading in, in a lot of political discourse around the world, really suggesting that people are moving solely because of the climate crisis and not engaging with these more like systemic issues that we really need to understand. So when we're talking about this, we should also be talking about how global capitalism functions. In addition, and again, maybe depending on where in the world you are, how you might want to approach this, I think at an individual level, 
we can support existing organizations that provide very basic services for people who are locked out of those services because of their immigration status. All around the world, though, there are different centers supporting people, regardless of what their immigration status is. You know, those places always need money. So if you have money, but they also always need more people to be involved because people get burnt out. And then I, I think sitting here in the UK, and so again, this is like very different depending on where you are, at a policy level, if we're thinking about more systemic change, I think we have to advocate for changing the way our countries work so that we are reducing our emissions in a, in a major way, given that the richer countries are the ones that emit more and poorer countries are the ones that experience the impacts of the climate crisis more. And from the perspective of the UK, I think that also means talking about things like reparation. If we're going to think about making sure that places can adapt or support people to adapt where they may need to, reparations is really the route to achieving some kind of more just way of, of that happening. And I think anything that has conditions atta attached to it is reproducing the, the very same structures that have helped create the situation that we're in now. Well, what I have to say, it's quite similar to Maya, but I'll say it just in case it adds anything useful. So in individual terms, I was thinking of sensitizing on climate change to everyone, and that could connect to training individuals on their capacity to live a low carbon footprint life to prevent and mitigate climate change. So I think there is the, the pending job for nations and large companies all over the world, but also that we can live a healthy life in terms of a carbon footprint ourselves and make our contribution to the world. It has been done, but it could continue to be done. Also, I was thinking about once climate change kicks in and people lose their jobs and they have to move, or they decide to stay without having a, a means for earnings. Perhaps in the era of the digital world, we could be able to help people have more competences to, to be able to survive the real world in terms of labor opportunities in different fields so that people don't get stuck once they lose their jobs. That's something that really worries me. If you just depend on a simple, basic way of making your money, you will suffer more if climate change effects kick in. So how we can make societies more flexible and people and individuals more flexible in terms of their talents and flourishments over time through developing their own capacities and their digital capacities, if so. And also in, in at a policy level, I was thinking of finding ways, as Maya said, of protecting individuals' lives through planning safe areas for living, work opportunities, less risky in terms of climate change, and support those who might lose their jobs due to climate change, such as, for example, unemployment insurance for climate change emergencies, for example, something that countries could, could think about and plan accordingly. Also to promote region level support across countries for food security and water security, as well as nation's economic pitfalls that come from climate change. So have regional understandings and cooperations that come out of solidarity. Also to strengthen international consensus that regulate countries' carbon footprint at large and small scale and promote migration policies, strategies and actions that take into account climate change risks and effects in this particular population for a human rights and intercultural perspective that truly promotes social justice. And finally, every time we help countries reduce structural inequities, we are helping those who will suffer more for climate change to be able to come out of that detrimental inequity that they suffer before climate change comes in. So that's, that's what I had to add.
For those of us who are healthcare workers, a question is how do we do that within systems like the NHS, where there are policies such as the hostile environment, which makes it very challenging for migrants to be here and makes healthcare workers complicit in government policy that's excluding of and targeting of migrants. I think that within the broader conversations of climate justice, and especially for those of us working within the healthcare system and the healthcare sector, we need to consider how we can create and enable migrant inclusive and climate resilient healthcare systems. Climate resiliency is essentially being prepared for the shocks of climate change and also climate-related diseases. And migrant inclusivity is basically considering how we can reduce the barriers of access for migrants to healthcare services. And those aren't just financial barriers to access. And it's worth considering things like um, interpreters, translators and cultural factors, but also safety in the context of the political and economic systems that we're working in. And so in the UK, within the NHS, we've had this policy of hostile environment, which has essentially meant that it's felt dangerous for many people to access care and other public sector services. And we see patients not seeking care when they need to due to a well-founded fear of deportation. And so one of the organisations that that's working to dismantle this within the healthcare sector is called Docs Not Cops. It's a grassroots collective of healthcare workers, activists and patients who are campaigning with other migrant right groups to ensure that the NHS sees patients and not passports. So we're going to be treating people based not on where they're from, but instead their fundamental need. And if we recognise climate change as being caused primarily by countries in the global north and that countries in the global north have also benefited economically, not only from historical emissions, but colonialism and extraction that has gone hand in hand with it, then we need to play our part in bringing about intersectional equity in the context of climate change. So this means things like considering reparations, facilitating safe migration and finding solutions to the climate crisis that not only reduce emissions and protect the natural world, but that do so in a way which create a fairer, more just and more equal world in the process. Thank you. Thank you to all of you for sort of guiding us through the issues of migration, how it relates to climate change and then the racial and, and xenophobic element to this as well. Uh, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to, to tell us? Yeah, I suppose just very briefly is that whenever we are talking about migration, we are actually talking about bordering. Like if we're thinking about the outcomes, how people are treated, when we think about bordering, we should really recognise the different forms of bordering, whether that is like the border where the land meets the sea or between countries or whether it is internal borders, the kinds of checks are in the hostile environment in Britain. These are not inevitable. They are often sold to citizens of countries as ways to protect them, but actually they breed and rely on violence. When we're thinking about movement, we should really recognise that the thing that does some of the most harm to people is acts of bordering that exclude people and racism is embedded in bordering regimes, depending on where in the world you are. The, the border is always going to discriminate on some grounds or another. So examining the border and not only the fact that people move and the reasons why they do, but what bordering is doing globally is really, really important if we're going to think about how we create a fairer world for everyone. I guess as a final thought, um, I predict politically in response to the climate crisis, there's going to be an increase in othering, in borders and in scapegoating of migrants. And that's something that we all need to be incredibly aware of and also to resist. Because I fundamentally believe that what's going to get us through the climate crisis is collaboration, solidarity and pooling and sharing of resources. We need to move into being in better relationship with each other and to the natural world. And I feel it's fundamentally important that we don't let these times be defined by division, but instead by solidarity. 
not really something to add, Dylan, just to say thank you. It was a really interesting conversation and discussion. And it was wonderful meeting Maya Rita and seeing yourself again. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much to all of you. Thank you to my guests, Baltica Cabiesis, Maya Goodfellow and Rita Issa. If you like this episode, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Race and Health or visit our website www.raceandhealth.org where we'll be sharing resources and updates about race and health's work towards climate justice. Thank you for listening.